Stand with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles. I do hope you have one. Psalm 127. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 518. In our ongoing series through the Psalms of Ascent, we come to these five verses this morning. And as I was meditating on them earlier this week, I came to the realization, I think, believe it or not, in my pastoral ministry, I have recited and quoted from this psalm probably more than any other in all my years for reasons that might be clear enough in the moments to come. But let us notice what God has for us today as I read this text and then pray for His blessing and we begin together. So here now as God speaks to you through His Word. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it, they labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask your blessing upon us this day. We thank you that your word is perfect, that it's pure, that it's powerful, that it's living and active. Send the Spirit into our hearts to open our minds that we might receive this truth, that we might respond as you desire for us to with faithfulness, with repentance, with new obedience. Help us to hear with ears that are ready, with hearts that are meek before you for me to preach as you say I must, clearly and boldly as a dying man unto dying people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's been long understood to be true that home is the foundation of human society. Uh, We might say that a little differently in God's church. We might say as the home goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes the society. And you might be one of those people that enjoy watching these television shows that are a little more than survival programs. You know, the ones that I'm speaking of where an individual that's earnest that supposedly skilled is dropped in behind nature's enemy lines and finds himself in this inhospitable environment. And then the watching world gets to see whether he or she can make it through the night, let alone make it weeks or months in this wilderness area. And if you ever came across survival experts that would train such individuals, they tend to teach that there's a three-fold method to thinking about your matters of importance and significance on that first day. And the best teachers have kind of put in this three-tiered system. You've got three weeks to find food. You've got three days to find water. You have three hours to build a shelter. Because without the shelter, you're not, you don't know what the night might bring. But catastrophe or calamity could fall upon you. For survival is built upon a reliable, a steady, and faithful shelter. And the reason I tell you that is because Psalm 127 
In a way that might stand out as odd in these psalms that we believe were sung as people were on their way up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. It's a psalm that focuses on building a godly home. For vital to the extension of God's purposes in the world are godly homes. Christian shelters. And you might not have noticed it before, but of course one of God's principal acts in creation was creating a home. He created the heavens and the earth. He filled the lands and the lakes, the seas and the skies, and then he created man. And what did he say? It wasn't good that Adam was alone. And so he yanked out one of his ribs, created Eve, his wife, and thus what did he create? But the first home. A home that was necessary for God's purposes to extend and grow in the world. So I wonder how you are going about building a home. Of course, in this room, some of you are just beginning the work of building a home, a shelter unto the Lord. There's others of you in this room that you're at the end of that shelter building project. Certainly, there are some of you in the room that are praying about the possibility of building a home with another person, or that God would answer the desire for being able to build a home with another person. But Psalm 127 is going to help us understand the degree to which the Christian home is a complete counterculture in the world. That Christian homes, godly homes, are exactly, precisely the opposite of the world's values. For these homes are built, of course, on God's principles, God's promises, His truths, His tools. Are what we use to build a, a Christian home, eternal and gospel reality. So that's a simple theme that you want to see from these five verses, building a godly home. And you may have noticed really the way that the text works itself out. It's got two stanzas, and it gives us this teaching by way of contrast, because in verses 1 and 2, the first stanza, it's about fruitless home building. We might say, how not to do it. And then verse 3 to 5, which is the second stanza, is about fruitful home building which we might say is how God does it. So notice, fruitless home building, it begins again, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's important when you're reading these Psalms of Ascent, like you would any psalm, is that you make sure you recognize the actual original psalm doesn't begin in verse 1. Because it starts, if you notice above, at least in my translation, the way the formatting works, a song of ascent of Solomon. So this is a song that Solomon wrote. Now, kids, what do you know about Solomon? Well, you might know that David was his dad, that Bathsheba was his mom, that he was reported and reputed to be the wisest ruler that ever lived. And so whenever you find Solomon writing scripture, you almost inevitably come to a writing that focuses on wisdom lived in the fear of God. And you might also know that it was Solomon whom the Lord commissioned to build God's house, which was what? The temple. So possibly what Solomon has in mind here in verse 1 is the temple, unless the Lord builds the temple, those who build it labor in vain. It's possible that that's really what he's referring to. But if you just kind of scan your eyes once again through the rest of the psalm, it's pretty clear that he's got a much broader purpose, a much more general audience, if you will, in mind, which is ordinary homes, ordinary households, ordinary families. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vanity. Years ago, when I was a student pastor, one semester we were teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes in the evenings, Sunday evenings, to the kids. 
And there was a band at that time that I rather enjoyed that had a song that kind of became an anthem for our study because it was a song that very much was kind of about Ecclesiastes. And so during those weeks and months, you could hear these teenagers throughout the church singing in the hallways, everything is meaningless, nothing in the world can fill me now. And parents were like, what is that guy teaching my kids over there? And I say, we're just teaching them Ecclesiastes, because if you understand, of course, like I do, that it's Solomon who authored that book, you know how it begins, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And what does Solomon say in this passage in the first two verses, but three times, emphasizing labor done in vain? You see that? Notice the end of the first part of verse 1, the end of the second part of verse 1, and the beginning part of verse 2. What he's telling you right from the outset is labor... Building a home apart from God, it's utterly meaningless. It's all emptiness. It's all vanity. And what he's going to do really in verses 1 and 2 is point that vanity in two different directions. Because first, he talks about fruitless pursuits of protection. Look at the end of verse 1. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now students, you might know one of the most important jobs in ancient cities was that of the watchman, the person that was commissioned to kind of walk around the ramparts, the walls of the city. It was the all-seeing eye that was always on the lookout for danger, for attack, for assault from the enemies. And what, of course, Solomon is saying is you might watch, you might stay awake, you might seek protection, but if it's not actually done in reliance upon the Lord's power, it's all in vain. Because, of course, we know that humans have frailties and failings. There are countless times in human history where the watchman has fallen asleep. And what happened? That city placed all its hope in a watchman, and it was sacked in an instant. But of course we know from Psalm 121 that Yahweh neither sleeps nor slumbers. So it's true if you apply this text in certainly a contemporary way, you can lock your doors at night. You can queue up the home alarm system. But you do that knowing that your protection ultimately resides in none other but God himself. That you can rely on your own human means of protection. You can rely on your own human means of security and stability. But if it's actually not God who is the one on whom you truly rest. It's all vanity, this pursuit of protection. But not just protection. Notice in verse 2 he talks about fruitless pursuits of provision. He says it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, some of you may fit this first part of verse 2 quite acutely, for you know what it will mean tomorrow morning to rise up early to go to work. You'll know what it means tomorrow evening to go to bed late, and nothing more between that long extension of hours than labor and work in your ordinary vocation. It was back in 1971 that a psychologist named Wayne Oates, he coined a term that's now uh, quite universally known. Uh, He coined a term that was workaholism. It was in this book that he published that was called Confessions of a Workaholic. And it's now a condition that even experts recognize as something almost like a mental health problem. That the constant pursuit of achievement, the constant pursuit of success, the constant pursuit of provision does nothing more than fuel anxiety, fuel stress, stoke worry and fear to a crippling degree. And so it's no surprise that as a sociologist have reflected on this in the decades since 1971, uh, they would speak about the 
workaholic generation producing, my generation, the burnout generation, and then you wonder what might my generation produce, such as the ordinary human approach to work. Because, of course, again, Solomon is not telling us that we're meant to live lazy lives. Some of you will have to get up early tomorrow and go to bed late tomorrow, and that's an okay thing. You're being obedient. You're being faithful in the vocation that God has trusted to you. But his warning is coming through this unique way of saying it in the middle part of verse 2, that your life can easily go about nothing more than eating the bread of anxious toil. You know, kids, I would imagine in, in recent days, if you were like my children, you have asked your mom or your dad, oh, when's snack time? Or, or, when are we going to have dinner? Because you wanted to satisfy your hunger. And what Solomon is saying is this workaholic life that doesn't rely on the Lord's provision. It's a little more when you go to the dinner table, you're just eating bread of anxious toil, you're eating cereal of anxiety, you're eating a sandwich of worry, because it's all done in your own strength and on your own power. In order to try to encourage you away from that, you'll see how he ends verse 2. For he gives to his beloved sleep. I went through a period of time when, when I was younger where I was having to drive through the night quite a bit, uh, visiting friends across the way. And I actually would often recite this psalm in such conditions, for he gives to his beloved sleep, precisely as I was doing the opposite of relying upon the Lord. But it's interesting, the translation, the way it works. I mean, you could translate it like the ESV does. He gives to his beloved sleep. Or you could translate it as he gives to his beloved in their sleep. Which is true, isn't it? Either way, that God gives to his beloved sleep, but he also gives to his beloved in their sleep. That's one of the richest blessings that belongs to a life that appreciates the Lord's day for the entire day, setting aside your ordinary work to saying, I trust that God will provide for me even as I do nothing other than rest in him. You want to be a truly countercultural Christian today, just live your Sunday as though it actually is the Lord's day, that he will continue to provide for you as you wait upon him. That's of course what he's saying. It's true. He gives to his beloved sleep. It's a particular. It's a peculiar sleep. You notice. He gives not just to everyone. Not just to anyone. He gives to his beloved sleep. And it's probably true. That Solomon is actually speaking about this. From personal experience. You could go study 2 Kings chapter 12. Later on today. And you would find out. That when Solomon is born. It says the Lord loved him. And so they also called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. So he seems to be reflecting back on all these occasions where in the midst of his incredible responsibilities as ruler of God's people, he rests upon the Lord, knowing that he gives him sleep. But I do ask you this morning, would you say that you are numbered among the beloved? Those whom God has given unique promises of provision to? Of course, being numbered among the beloved means nothing other than turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, he who is the beloved of God, that you find yourself as a loved child of God, a son or a daughter of the king, an heir to all of his protection, all of his provision. So verse 1 and 2, fruitless home building. What about fruitful home building? Well, that's verse 3 to 5. It was around this time last year that I read an article from what is one of the largest online magazines in Australia, and it was provocatively titled, 
the other pandemic sweeping across the world. And you might ask, well, what is that other pandemic sweeping across the world? And it simply was the pandemic so defined as childlessness. And the author was wondering, what's going to happen to a world? What should we expect will happen to a world that finds itself never expecting any more children? And what we need to understand in verse 3 through 5 is it confronts this childlessness that increasingly belongs to even Christian families with God's perspective on his children. For notice verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. The word there for children is actually the word sons. If you want to translate it literally, you just say, Behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Now, you need to know in the ancient culture in which Solomon was writing, sons were a unique heritage from the Lord. So often a family's security and future stability relied upon sons in that culture. But of course, that more general way of talking about at the end of verse 3, the fruit of the womb of rewards, telling us, of course, all children, sons, daughters, what are they but rewards from God? They are also a heritage from God, or depending on your translation, it may use a language of inheritance. So you see, don't you, how God's word confronts the ordinary perspective of our culture that views children as inconveniences and encumbrances. And God says, no, they're an inheritance. But so many people often speak about children as though they're using language of regret and the Bible uses language of reward. And I want you to know that it's true increasingly even in our times that Christians talk about children with less than biblical language. I can't wait till they're out of my house. I'm just so eager for school to start again. Yeah, we really didn't want another one. Inheritance. Reward that God has given to his people. As he's building the home. So notice what he wants to fix our attention on. Verse 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. As many of you know we have six children. What are they these days? Aged 11 to 4. When you go out in public with a gaggle like that. People say strange things. You know if we had 10 bucks for every time. They said you know how that happens right? Or Emily would be out at the store, boy, you have your hands full. And always the desire that our kids would hear from their mother or father's lips is, yeah, hands full of blessings. For so often isn't it true that when God gives many children to his people, they can often feel anything less than his blessed provision. And I'm reminded of this old story by Reverend Moses Brown years ago. He had 12 children, and he was out in public, and A well-meaning but somewhat concerned citizen said to him, Mr. Brown, you have as many sons as Jacob. As though this was a problem. Right? You know, who's going to provide for them? Who's going to clothe them? Who's going to feed them? These 12 sons. And he says, well, yes, it's true. But I have Jacob's God to provide for them. For the simple truth that you want to see, verse 1 and 2 are about the work in the home, God's provision through his people resting upon them. Certainly it's true in verse 3 through 5, this second stanza, that God is also telling us He provides the children that He has entrusted to us. And no doubt He will provide for them. If you read enough old sermons actually on this text, you would find out in in verse 4 that you would find these old preachers often exhorting young parents to have children when they are young, such as the language of children of one's youth. And I am somewhat sympathetic to that argument, but... 
in texts like this, even into the first part of verse 5, you, you don't drive this huge truck of doctrinal conviction through what God is simply saying, but only all the children that he has given to you, whenever he's given them, how many he's given to you. This is part of your inheritance. This is part of the reward and the kindness of God to his people. It's so often true, isn't it, that God not only provides children to his people, he often provides through children to his people. Notice the end of verse 5. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So in the ancient world, if you came to the city's gate, you would often find these judicial matters being settled. You would find these financial disputes being discussed and Of course, because of the nature of the time, it was quite common that parents would get caught up in some degree of false accusation, scandal, or theft. And if you had sons and daughters that could rise and defend your good name at the city's gate, it was very common that it was much harder for you to be put to shame in the midst of such false accusation, theft, or scandal. And it's always encouraging, I trust you hear these stories even in our own church, how some of you, many of you actually, who are in the room today, so earnestly and faithfully care for aging parents. And a society, isn't it true, that increasingly puts aging parents to shame? But it's godly children who look after, who care, who ensure, even at our culture's gates, that these parents are not put to shame. And perhaps you haven't realized it before, that what you are fulfilling in a way you never knew is little more than God's promise to His people through His blessed provision of children. What kind of home are you building? Are you building with fruitless labor? Are you building upon God's fruitful promises? Now, if you ever had the opportunity to go to Scotland and visit its capital city, which is Edinburgh, you would probably find, because there's history everywhere in that city, you would not take terribly long before you'd come across the city's coat of arms, and its coat of arms under which it flies. And on top of is this three-word Latin phrase that if you translate it, simply means accept the Lord in vain. It's language that comes directly from Psalm 127, verse 1 in older translations. Now, if you know anything about Scotland's history, you know that in centuries past, they took that word of God to be quite real. They considered themselves a country consecrated to the Lord. But over years, decades, and centuries... Slowly that conviction became dislodged and it's disappeared to such a degree that now missiologists would count the Scotch people as an unreached people group because they've forgotten the Lord to that extent. And you know, we dare not even want to think about such realities as though we can just pat ourselves on the back here on the western side of the Atlantic. We're going in a similar direction, aren't we? What our world needs is God's perspective, not just on the truth, but God's perspective on homes. We need restoration, we need revival, and what God says is true about the household that he has entrusted to us, that we might likewise not find a nation, we might likewise not even find Christian churches that once rejoiced in children, now just removing themselves from God's blessing. So what I want to do as we begin to close, I want to take these verses... And apply them to three different groups of people, all of which that are in the room today. I want to apply them to children, to parents, and then the church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. So, number one, godly children live to bless others. So, kids, 
I want you to think specifically with me about this truth. Godly children live to bless others. I mean, it's a truth that you can tattoo upon your heart that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. That is your identity as God's children. And what he means is for his blessing to be extended throughout the world through ordinary people like you. Just think of all the simple ways, kids, that you can bless others. You bless your mom and dad as you obey and as you honor. You bless your neighbors, your schoolmates, your classmates, as you love them, as you love yourself. Your life is meant to be a blessing to others. And if you're older, if you're in high school, perhaps you're even in college. That's a good point even this morning to examine whether or not your carefree existence is just causing sorrow and affliction to your parents. So often in the desire to live a life that's independent of your home, you just become everything but a blessing to your home. And so it's actually why if you turn to a number of old sermons on Psalm 127, you'd find at this point the old preachers almost making a universal application to youth is the best time to be converted. And it's true. Some of you perhaps are not able to bless others because you don't know the blessed one who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That you don't bring honor to your parents because you don't know the honorable one. You don't obey your authorities because you don't know the obedient son. And what you need to hear is, of course, God intends for you to be a blessing. And you can only be a blessing if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Godly children live to bless others. Parents, number two, godly parents train their children for the right aims. Verse 4's language is so useful, isn't it? Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. I'm not an archer. I know, though. Sticks are not arrows by nature. You have to train them, form them, fashion them, that they fly straight, that they hit the intended target. It's an after metaphor, isn't it, for Christian parenting, forming, fashioning, shaping, training, that they might fly straight and hit the intended target. And trust me, the intended target is not worldly comfort. It's not political aptitude. It's not interest in athletics. It's not success, stability, or security in the world. It's loving the Lord their God with all their heart, souls, minds, and strength. Loving the neighbor as themselves. And of course, as you go about, parents, your work of discipline and instruction, you're aiming at such targets, relying upon the Lord, because otherwise, as verse 1 and 2 says, it would all be in vain your parenting labor. So you want to consider your work as a parent much like that great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. You might know the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. He's building this altar with 12 large stones as he's contesting the prophets of Baal. He's digging a trench around the altar. Hard labor, hard work, filling this moat, this trench with water. Then what does he do? He begins to pray hard. That God would send down his blessing, his fire upon this altar. So much of Christian parenting is little more than putting spiritual kindling around your children and praying for God to light it up. I trust that you're doing that. Spiritual kindling around your children, praying in earnest upon his sovereign grace and mercy that the Spirit would come down and light them up, set them aflame for Jesus Christ and the purposes of his kingdom. So godly children live to bless others. Godly parents train their children for God's aims. Thirdly, godly churches count children as God's gifts. 
Godly churches count children as God's gifts. My early ministry was spent in something of a rural context. At least it was rural at the time. And the number of times that pastor would say something akin to, if the church ain't crying, the church is dying, was always a thing that settled upon me. Some of you have been in dying churches that don't know crying babies. You don't have to be long at this church to see little legs running around. Hear little lungs crying aloud. I wonder what you think of such children. Some of you, I know, because you've told me as much, find them to be just altogether frustrating and distracting from your personal preferences in worship. It's incredibly disheartening. So what we need, of course, if that's you, but what we always need, if it's not you, is to count them as God's gifts. What we need is the heart of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus' teaching. He's going about his ministry and the disciples say, no, 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 he doesn't have interest in even that infant. What does Jesus say? Rebuking them. Let the children come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You need little legs running around. You need little lungs crying aloud. If you're having the heart of Jesus Christ who welcomes them into his hands of grace. And of course, it's Jesus Christ himself who is the master home builder, the book of Hebrews tells us. He's the cornerstone on which this church is built, on which any church is built. So, children, you must look to him. And then you'll know what it means to bless others. Parents, you must also look to him. Then you'll know what it means to train your children for his aims. And we as a church must look to him, that we might count little children as God's blessings unto us. You know, with the number of little children we have at home, it seems like a decade has gone by where every single day you'll find one of the kids playing with magnetiles or blocks at home. And like a broken record, I always ask, well, what are you building? I wonder what you're building in your home. I wonder what we're building in this church. Let it be the fruitful harvest of grace that's found in Jesus Christ under the Lord's power and provision. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you are a God who loves us. Loves us so much that you provide for us in our labor. You provide for us in our homes. God, we pray for the heart of your Son. We pray for a heart that knows the blessing that belongs to being raised in a godly home. The blessing that belongs to having a godly home. So help us with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving even this day to abound evermore. I trust in your provision. I trust in your protection as you continue to care for us according to your abundant compassion and kindness that's found in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this psalm responding to what we just studied. It's printed today in your bulletins, Psalm 127, to the tune of I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. <laughs>